Dan Oak Mountain. Uh, it is so good to be back with you. As many of you know, uh, Laurie and I just got back from uh, Denver, Colorado, where we met our fourth grandchild in the past six months. And if I seem to be floating across the stage, uh, you now know why. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. We're doing a summer series in the Psalms, and as the video does just so exquisitely, the Psalms were written to give our hearts an opportunity to express themselves when at times we just don't know what to say. We know there's something deep going on inside of us, but the Psalms have a way of giving word to what's happening in us, and that's no less true this morning. As a matter of fact, Psalm 2 was able to help me give expression to some things that I'm experiencing that I think probably many of you are experiencing through these past several months as well. But the other thing Psalm 2 is going to do is it's going to set up for the first time in about four months us coming to the Lord's table. And I want to let you know how well these two things mesh together this morning, Psalm 2 and the Lord's table. Psalm 2 is what's known as a coronation psalm. It's where the the next king in the Davidic line over the people of God is anointed as king. And that anointing, God calls in Psalm 2, the king becoming his son. Now that's strange language, but you need to understand it's a ceremony of covenant renewal. When the new king was anointed, when he was coronated, he entered into a special representative relationship with God and the people. And as the king was anointed, God was anointing that king with his spirit and blessing to lead the people of God. And as the king was anointed, the people's response in that covenant renewal ceremony was to follow that king and trust that God was going to bless the nation as the king followed God and the people followed God and followed the king. But what we find out this morning is ultimately the anointed king was simply pointing to the ultimate king who would come from the line of David, the anointing of the Son of God. And we're going to talk more about that as we move forward. As we come to the table this morning, I can't think, and I'm not being overly dramatic, I'm just being honest, I can't think of another moment in time during my ministry for 31 years at Oak Mountain where we have been more desperately in need of the gospel blessings that Christ promises us at this table. Have you all ever been through what we're going through right now? Have you ever seen so much anxiety, so much fear, so much frustration, so much tension, so much political rancor? Everything's been politicized. 
If you wear a mask, you're on the left. If you don't, you're on the right. If you respond positively to this whole idea of racial reconciliation, you must be on the left. If you're wanting to stand up for the various flags of the South, well, then you're on the right. It's divisive. It's rancor. And most of it's born out of fear. And so as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded that as we come to the table, we get to experience afresh the covenant blessings of Christ. As we come to the table, our union with Christ is strengthened. And all the gospel blessings that were promised in Christ is made more real in our lives. But it's also a covenant renewal ceremony because as we partake of Christ spiritually present at this table, we also renew our covenant responsibilities to follow Christ in fresh faith and new obedience. At the covenant renewal ceremony of the new anointed king in the line of David, the people were promised they would be blessed so that in accordance with Genesis 12, they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And as we come to the covenant renewal ceremony of the table, we receive the blessings of Jesus, not as an end in itself for us, but that we may be blessed, according to Genesis 12, so that we might be a blessing. So how do we become a blessing in such a divided world? The vision that we even hear, not hear, H-E-A-R, here, is rampant in the church. The only answer is the Savior's kiss. You ever heard the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Of course you have. Do you know where that originated? It's from an early church father. The, the, The early church fathers were pastor theologians who spoke and led to the church in the first several centuries. A man named Ambrose, many people call him Saint Ambrose, he actually uttered that phrase, when in Rome do as the Romans do. But Ambrose was known for a lot more than that. He was the bishop of Milan in Italy in the late 300s AD. Probably one of the most significant things he did was to mentor and teach a student who became even greater in impact than Ambrose himself. And that was Augustine of Hippo. Ambrose was the first church father to be baptized as a covenant child. Augustine came to Christ later in life as a young adult. But Ambrose was baptized as a covenant child, raised in the Scriptures, and never knew a day when he didn't trust and love Jesus or experience Jesus' love. And because of that background, and he was so studied in the Word, Ambrose tackled what very few pastor theologians tackled in his day. And that was the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. 
Now, Ambrose knew that the Song of Solomon is primarily a song about intimate love between a husband and a wife. But he also knew, because of Ephesians 5, where Paul uses marriage as an illustration to paint the picture of the intimacy between Christ and the church, Ambrose knew that there was a secondary application of the Song of Solomon that applied to a believer and Christ, the Beloved. So he goes to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. And that verse says, Let my beloved kiss me. And he said, when it comes to a believer in Christ experiencing the presence of Jesus at the table, the believer needs to feel the elements, the bread touching the lips, the fruit of the vine touching the lips, And use your spiritual imagination to picture the very spiritual presence of Christ kissing you with his love and grace and power. The covenant renewal ceremony. And then having experienced the blessings of Christ, we then get up and leave to be a blessing to the world. A beautiful marriage this morning between Psalm 2, covenant renewal, Jesus, and the table. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word and follow along as I read Psalm 2. By the way, this psalm is one of the most repeated psalms cited in the New Testament, constantly pointing to Jesus as God's anointed. Keep that in mind as I read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then now the king speaks in the covenant renewal ceremony. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Sounds like wrath, doesn't it? Well, there's more going on there that meets the eye, and we'll talk about that. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And here's our key verse this morning. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to experience continual covenant renewal. 
He wants us to experience afresh His grace, and He wants us to move out as servants of His grace. Let's pray. God, we could never thank You enough for Your Word. Where would we be without it? We'd be without truth. We'd be without hope. And so, Jesus, please teach us this morning. Teach us about all that you offer us by your finished work. And teach us all that we're ought to offer to you in response. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. To, to kiss the sun is obviously a sign of surrender, a sign of submission. You see people kissing other people's feet or kissing hands. When it comes to a king, it's a sign of submission and surrender to that king. But the king kissing is also a sign of his promise and pledge to protect you and provide for you and to care for you. The Lord's Supper is the Savior's kiss. So three fruits of the gospel we experience at the table. First of all, kiss the Son to experience life-changing power. As we look at verses 1 through 3, uh, the king is being, is, is being aware of the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the king of Israel. He's saying, why do the nations rage? Why do they try to overcome the kingdom of God? And he's not looking for an answer, is he? It's a rhetorical question. How could you be so foolish? How could you actually rise up against the God of the universe? How do you possibly think that you could put a dent in the kingdom of God when the power of God is what allows the kingdom to reign and rule and expand? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord, against the anointed. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke applies this to Herod and Pilate. Herod and Pilate came together against the Lord and against his anointed. The ultimate king that all these covenant renewal ceremony kings and their anointing pointed to. And look what it says in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Obviously, the father didn't laugh at the cross. He's laughing at Herod. He's laughing at Pilate. Raging together, plotting together, scheming together against the Lord and his anointed. And why does God laugh? Because Herod and Pilate and and beyond them, all the wicked, all the hostile against the church actually think they're getting in the way of God's plan of redemption. And God laughs because those people raging against the Lord are actually the means of fulfilling the plan of the Lord. Herod and Pilate, Luke says in Acts, 
did exactly as God predestined them to do. They were fulfilling and accomplishing the will of God. Now, how does that apply to our lives today? What do you feel threatened by today? COVID? Racial tension? Politics? Whether Trump's going to be elected, re-elected, someone else in his place? Is that what you're threatened by? What's God say? He laughs. He's saying, my dear children, are you serious? It even says in verse 4, he laughs, and then it says, he sits on his throne. He's not even getting up. He sits. He's resting. He's in total control. God has even ordained the wicked to accomplish his purposes. When it comes to our battle spiritually against hostile enemies, principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities of the spiritual darkness... It's not a fair fight, people. It's not even like God is fighting with two hands behind his back. Satan has no power. Wickedness has no power. The kings of the earth and the kings of the earth have no power unless God has granted it to them. And so how should that affect us as believers? We can rest as well, can't we? You know, people are so wrapped around the axle today. They're so concerned about so many things in America. Like, like somehow the, the status of the kingdom is dependent upon what happens in America. Are you kidding me? America came And if the Lord tarries, America will go. (laughs) And God's purpose is never going to be thwarted. And, And people are getting so upset with each other, even in the church. People on the right doubt that a Democrat could even be a Christian or spiritual. Dear flock, I hope you realize that that is so ridiculous. And so judgmental. And and so very blind. Or or people think that the churches are going to rise or fall with the election of Trump. Are you kidding me? The Lord laughs. And says, I am on the throne. And I've established my king." On Zion, my king, on my holy hill. And what we are to be wrapped up with is the power of the risen Christ to expand the rule and reign of Christ all over the world. 
And I get so concerned at times. I'm speaking here as a pastor, as a shepherd. I get so concerned that the enemy has succeeded in making peripheral issues seem vital. And they're not. They're not. Mississippi voted to change their flag yesterday. And I've talked to people that are up in arms like the church is going to be destroyed. Like we're going to lose all of our freedoms. And the Lord laughs. It's like, really? You're really worried about that? What about the kingdom? What about the church? What about the unity of the church? Jesus alone has the power to rule over our hearts. And he alone is owed our allegiance. He alone can subdue our enemies. I want to put back up the question for this week in the catechism. How does Christ execute the office of a king? And again, Psalms 2 is about Jesus. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Look, in the midst of all of the rancor and divisiveness in America and among even Christians, let's not forget that the first enemy that needs to be subdued is our own flesh. The first enemy that needs to be subdued is within us. And only the kiss of the Savior grants us the power to overcome the flesh. Where do you see the power of the flesh rising up in you through these months? Where do you see the power of pride rising up in you during these months? Where do you see the power of fear rising up in you over these months? And only the Savior's kiss can grant us the power to see the flesh overcome. And then it says, in ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. You see, that's why the Father laughs at some of the things that, can we just say it? The church is worried about right now. Just like Israel kept looking to Egypt for strength, just like Israel kept looking to Egypt for security, God says, so are we if we're looking to government powers of any kind to provide us our security. Only Christ is our king. And only Christ can subdue us and restrain all his and our enemies. I desperately need the power of Christ. Do you feel it in your life? You know why I need it? 
Because I find myself becoming so saddened and frustrated and disheartened by what's going on around us. I look at the race issue and I hear people that I know know Jesus. The first thing out of their mouths when they hear about the race issue is, well, yeah, but what about? Well, yeah, but what about? Well, yeah, but what about? And we need the power of the gospel to close our mouths and say, dear Jesus, help me learn. Help me grow. Help me listen. And when I look on Facebook or Twitter or hear people talking to each other and listen to conversations, I need to tell you, I get so disheartened. Because I don't hear one holy passion for the kingdom of God. So often I don't hear that. Now, I must tell you, in this church, so often I do. And that's what's so encouraging about being together. But just get on social media. Well, maybe don't. But if you want to see what's happening, what people are thinking, you'll understand what I'm saying. The power of Christ is what we need to change our hearts. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search them. Is that what it says? Search me, O God, and see if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So the next time you find yourself struggling with the forces of darkness or the kingdoms raging against the church, remember that God laughs. I mean, it almost seems, it almost seems unworthy of God, doesn't it? But he mocks those who rage against him. The text says he holds them in derision. People, no matter what happens, please listen. No matter what happens, God is seated on his throne. There's no sweat on his brow. There's no wringing of his hands. No matter who's president. No matter what party's in control. And even whether America even exists, God's plan and God's kingdom is moving forward. And there's nothing to fear. Kiss the Son to experience life-changing power. Secondly, kiss the Son to experience life-changing grace. Now, there's two kinds of grace in this passage. The first kind of grace is the grace of warning. The second kind of grace is the grace of promise. You need to know that the grace of warning is just as life-changing as the grace of promise. Look at verse 5, the grace of warning. Notice verse 4 says God laughs. There comes a point where God stops laughing and starts speaking. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Again, God laughs at the political powers of the world that have us so hyped up. The day is coming when the king will return to earth. And he will set up the final kingdom. But now there's warning to those who would rise up against, against God and against his anointed. And by the way, the warning is not just for those who rage outside of the church. It's also for the church. The warning of grace. Listen, if, if you really love a child and their hand is getting perilously close to a red-hot stove, do you reason with them at that point? As their hand gets six inches, five inches, four inches, three inches, you know, you might not want to do that. Johnny, let's reason together here. No, you say, stop! Don't touch that! Oh, that hurt my feelings, Daddy. Yeah, well, I'd rather your feelings be hurt than your hand be scarred for life. I think sometimes we have this crazy view of grace that it has no teeth. And even for the church, God is saying to us all, where are you blurring the lines between obedience and ungodliness? Where do you need the grace of warning to say, stop it. You're, you're heading for trouble. Or it may not be like that. Maybe stop it! You're heading for trouble! And you think, well, gee, God, that was mean. Guess what? Sometimes grace has teeth. And when you're dabbling on the edge of sin and unrepentance. It's no time for little niceties. The grace of warning. It's such a wonderful blessing and privilege. May we heed it. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see uh, the promises of grace. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill, the perfect king to which all other kings pointed, the decree that the king says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. I've already talked about that. On the day of coronation, when the king was anointed, he entered in a special covenant relationship as God's representative. And as the king followed God, God blessed the king. And as the people followed the king who followed God, God blessed the people. And Israel forgot that a blessing was not an end in itself, but they were to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus was the eternal son, right? There was never a time when he wasn't the son. He's existed in eternity with God the Father and God the Spirit. And yet, look at what it says in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that makes sense for the earthly king in the line of David, right? Because he entered into that special covenant relationship through the covenant renewal ceremony. But Jesus becoming God's son? Well, believe it or not, in Acts 13, Dr. Luke, inspired by the Spirit, says 
that in fact Jesus was declared the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Luke actually applies Psalm 2 and says, Today I have begotten you by Jesus being raised from the dead. The same thing happens in Romans 1 verse 4. The Son of God, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was Christ's coronation. He was already king, but then it became obvious to all that he was the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of grace. And if we are in Christ by faith, then we are adopted as sons and daughters. Christ was declared to be the Son through the resurrection. And through faith in Christ, we become adopted as sons and daughters. Now, why is that important? Well, think about maybe ways you've responded to various circumstances over the past several months. Have you responded to coronavirus? Have you responded to news that it's a hoax on the one hand or a plague on the other hand? Have you responded to the numbers, whether they're going up or whether it's fake news? Have you responded to the whole race discussion? Yeah, but, or you see the need? Have you responded to people who think differently than you on those issues? There's where the rubber meets the road. We as believers have been shown infinite grace by the God of the universe in Christ. And as we experience grace, we are called to express grace. Can I just put it bluntly? There is never, ever an excuse for a Christian to be ungracious. I don't care if you are right. You're never in more danger of being most wrong than when you're most right. Because when you're most right, that's when pride can raise its head. That's when you can become judgmental. That's when you can actually, by demanding people hear your view because you know it's right, you can turn people off to the gospel rather than draw them to Jesus. In Christ we have been shown grace. May the church be known as gracious. I've talked to Alton Hardy of Urban Hope in Fairfield. I've talked to Don Sellers from South Park uh, down in West End. And we've been talking about how do we do this? How do we dialogue? How do we discuss without it becoming a referendum on our political system? And we've decided together that basically the only way is to come together. And so we're going to plan dinner groups. We're going to have black church members from Alton's church and Don's church. We're going to have white church members from our church. Black church members, thankfully, from our church. And we're going to sit down and eat together. 
and we're going to share and we're going to rest in grace. And when we rest in grace as adopted children who are already loved, who don't live as orphans as if there's no one up there to protect the truth, and we recognize that we're justified by faith in Christ, we're already right with God, then guess what? We don't need to be seen as right. We don't need to be perceived as right. We don't need to demand that people hear our right views. But being right with God, we can listen. Even if we disagree, we can listen. And when we do respond, We can respond with grace and kindness. That's the way Jesus responds to us. Every single day, do you realize? We all say or think something really stupid into the ears of God. Every day. Every day. Not one person here every day that doesn't think or speak something stupid to the heart of God. And he doesn't blast us, does he? He's patient. He's kind. Kiss the Son to experience life-changing grace. And then thirdly, before we come to the table, kiss the Son to experience life-changing hope. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Now, Who's he talking to? He's talking to the rebellious kings of the earth who were raging against the Lord and his anointed. And he's saying, now therefore, O kings, be wise. He's actually giving an invitation to rebels to come and kiss the sun. He's actually inviting them to become servants, from rebels to servants. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The hope of the gospel is the only hope for any of us to be changed. It's the only hope for the prideful and the self-righteous to become humble, for the self-centered to become loving, for the lost to be saved, for black and white and red and yellow to be reconciled. The gospel is the only hope for the world. Not America, not our politics, not our present president, nothing, nothing, nothing offers hope the way the gospel of Jesus Christ does. So how do we serve Jesus? Well, we need power and we need grace to serve Jesus because I would think something every one of us could do and benefit from is read and reflect upon Philippians 2. You know what it means to be a Christian? You want to know what it means? Obviously, trust Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. But if we've trusted Christ, you know what the Holy Spirit's going to do in us? Philippians 2. That's what he's going to do. What's Philippians 2 say? Consider the needs of others as more important than your own. That's how you really know if, if the Spirit of God's working in you. Consider the needs of others as more important than your own. An application? Seek to understand others before you demand to be understood. Ouch. Seek to understand others until you demand to be understood. 
See, Christ calls us to serve him by giving up our rights, not demanding them. Ouch! We hate that, don't we? Don't we? Let's be honest. We hate giving up our rights because we know we could get trampled. Dear flock of God, what happened to Jesus? He gave up his rights and he was stomped. Yes, that could happen. But what was the benefit? The nations were saved. What if God wants us stomped? Now, I'm not saying there's no place to stand up. I'm not saying there's never a place to talk about change that needs to happen. Of course there is. But the way we serve Christ, whose kingdom is not of this world, this is so hard. If I'm really honest, there have been times over the past several months I've lost hope. Not, not in Jesus. And I, I'm going to be really vulnerable here because it makes me sound like a terrible person. And guess what? I am. I've lost hope in Christians. I really have. I see what many Christians are committed to and what's important to them. And I don't get it. I just don't get it. And I want to just shout. And I, and I probably can't do it without being self-righteous. I just want to shout, where's your hope? Where are you looking for hope? And by the way, don't give me the Sunday school answer. Look at your words as a person. Or listen to your thoughts. Your words will reveal the heart. Your words will reveal. What you talk about will reveal where your hope really is. And our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the gospel. Our only hope is the Savior's kiss. Our only hope for power that's going to change the world. Our only hope for power that's going to change our lives. Our only hope for grace that's going to make us see our need for grace. And therefore, having experienced grace will express grace. The only hope for our world, for our nation, for our city, for our church, the only hope is the Savior's kiss.